$3.2 billion, New York City spending on homeless services, an amount that is more than double what the city was spending in fiscal year 2014. This increase has corresponded with a growing census that reached a record level in January 2019, earning the agencies providing support services to the homeless a spot on the New York City Comptroller's agency watch list. What's this list and what's it about? Coming up now on What's the Data Point. Welcome to What's the Data Point, your favorite New York City policy podcast brought to you by Citizens Budget Commission and Gotham Gazette. I'm Maria Dulles. Ben Max will be back on the next episode. On this episode, we feature a discussion between CBC President Andrew Ryan and New York City Comptroller Scott Stringer from a recent CBC event. The Comptroller discusses the impetus for creating the agency watch list and shares his assessment of spending and savings in the New York City budget, New York City competitiveness, rent regulation reform, transit services, property tax change, and lots more. Listen in for my favorite part, the discussion of the city's flawed procurement process. The Comptroller says it's not just a bureaucratic failing, it's a social justice issue. We'll be back soon with more programming. Feel free to reach out to us on Twitter with your suggestions for guests and topics to tackle over the summer. I'm at Maria Dulles and Ben is at Tweetland Max. It's also a good time to catch up on older episodes. We've had great conversations with Mira Joshi, the former TLC commissioner, CBC's Patrick Arecki on innovative financing mechanisms for transportation, and Dr. Mitchell Katz of New York City Health and Hospitals. Also remember to check in on cbcny.org and gothamgazette.com for our latest publications and articles. Lots of new content on both our sites. That's all for now. Happy 4th of July and happy listening. Let's talk about fiscal prudence, and we're enjoying a great recovery. One of the smart things to do in a recovery, both CBC and you have talked about, is putting a little money away every day, um, every year, so that when the economy eventually does turn down, we have the reserves to stave off counterproductive tax increases and really damaging service cuts. You know, CBC advocates a rainy day fund. We think it should be 17% of tax revenue. You've had something in the same kind of range into reserves. So I'd love you to talk a little about your approach to the city building up reserves, whether we should have a rainy day fund, how to really actualize that, and move it from the fiscal wonky discussion to fiscal reality. Well, first of all, let me just say thank you, Andrew, for giving me this opportunity to talk to all of you. I have enormous respect for CBC. I think the people in this room really represent so much of the thinking that goes about running a, you know, a big city like New York. I want to recognize our first deputy controller, Elena Gilligo. Everybody knows that the first deputy does the work. And I just want to, I just want to recognize her. So we should give a round of applause, because I enjoyed it. <laughs> and the best way to start addressing that question is just to let people know that back in the 70s, when I came of age in Washington Heights, I actually had somewhat of a front row seat to the city's fiscal crisis. I was a teenager, uh, and we were really on the edge of bankruptcy. And my dad worked for AB, he was his counsel. And I remember him coming home one day saying, look, I'm gonna have to be paid in script because the money's not gonna be there. My brother and I worried about our allowance, and my mother worried about child support payments and said that's no excuse, right? So. For me, this started at a very early age. Uh, fast forward to today, one of the things that has always informed us was that we have to do everything we can 
to make sure that we have a reserve fund, a rainy day fund, because the world is unpredictable. We saw that with 9-11, and we now saw that with the hurricane, and we have to be prepared. This city budget, since 2014, has not prepared us sufficiently for that rainy day. Uh, in the height of the Bloomberg administration, we were saving 18% of spend. Today, we are actually below 11%. We were at 11% last year. We're now down to 10.7%. So we are actually going backwards in our surplus years. I think the budget this year, for the first time since 2014, shows the budget roll from $4.6 billion down to $4.2 billion. That's the first time the roll has actually decreased. That is a warning sign to me. The council and the mayor are very proud of themselves. They say, well, we've put $300 million away for the rainy day, right, in, in the health fund and the like. Well, that's, that's a zero-sum game. So we have to do better with savings. This budget does not take care of that. The roll is a real warning sign. We're now down the money that we should have put even more money away. So how do we actually do that? Should we enact a rainy day fund? It will be the Charter Revision Commission has put that on the ballot and it's something that we've advocated for and are pretty happy that the Charter Revision Commission has seen to put it on the ballot in November. Is that something that you would support? Okay, a rainy day fund is, is sound. I would like to see a little more, depending on how it's constructed, I, I do have some concerns about just having uh, some room because of unforeseen circumstances. And I think the executive still has to manage for unforeseen circumstances. But the concept is right. We have to save more money. We should be 18% of spend. It's the only way to safeguard what will come our way. But again, people have to understand that this budget, the role has now decreased for the first time since 2014. The pork is up 15%, right? So discretionary spending goes up, savings goes down, and these are the good years when we should be doing all the tough work. I have called out uh, City Hall, and I don't mean to criticize the mayor, he had a good debate last night. I look forward to him coming home. Um, <laughs> you know, I'm gonna pick him up late from the airport, but um, that's why I have to leave. But, but I, I, I think that we have to make sure that the next government has the resources to, make, to deal with the challenges we face. Thank you. And one of the ways we do that is, and, and CBC's talked about that and you've talked about it, is finding those areas of savings and finding them by increasing productivity so we don't cut services. You have an agency watch list that identifies underperforming agencies. You pointed out that with the decline in inmate population at Rikers, we've actually increased our per inmate spend from $117,000 to $300,000 a year over, over 10 years. Where do we find that productivity in the budget so that we can save that money? So you, you, budgets are, are also our, our vision, our priorities as a city. And spending money to solve the homeless crisis, uh, to make sure that we have opportunities for education for children, these are all worthy initiatives. But I think we've lost our way a little bit. Spending has to relate to success and a metrics to see if we're actually solving the problem. So what, the reason I have the agency watch list is not to play gotcha with agencies, but it's really about making sure that the money we're spending is actually going to solving the problem. Let's take homelessness, for example, the Department of Homeless Services. 2014, we're spending $1.5 billion to manage a crisis, a homeless crisis. 60,000 people living in shelters, half of them are children. 
and we spend 1.5 billion. Today, we're spending 3.2 billion. We still have a homeless crisis that's getting bigger, and we now know, based on our research, that not only do we have a crisis of 60,000 people in our shelter system, where we're paying 3.2 billion, but we also have 580,000 New Yorkers who are one step away from homelessness based on an analysis we did. Where are we solving the problem? So we have to call out agencies when they're spending without showing us measurable improvement. That's why the Department of Corrections boggles my mind. We have less inmates, but more violence. We have more overtime, less inmates. There has to be a correlation between spend and success. We looked at Department of Buildings. Spending is up 60%. Staffing is up 50%. When we look at construction accidents, we now see an increase of 250%. Government has to actually solve problems and get results. And that has got to be our focus, because the money that we're spending, if spent correctly, is a good thing. But money that is thrown on a wall to see what sticks gets you into a fiscal crisis like we had in the 70s. Thank you. One of the challenges, and maybe I, I can say someone can hurl this challenge at CBC occasionally or other places in my career in public health, is it's so much easier to identify problems than to um, operationalize solutions. So how do we go the next step in those pr problems? What would we reduce in the budget, and where would you think we should be investing more so that we aren't increasing the budget, but really um, addressing problems in an effective way? There's a couple things. We should continue to have a earnest PEG program. We constantly should look for efficiencies in every city agency. We've proposed that in the controller's office almost from the beginning. We've not really seen a PEG program. Doesn't mean we're going to fire people, but it means that we look to save hundreds of millions of dollars every year. That's a way to save money, but also to prioritize. One of the reasons why I've looked at contracts, for example, the ferry uh, you know, contracts, I love ferries, they're wonderful, but I don't understand how we went from spending 50 million to 500 million, and then when we made the deal with the operator, we gave them the concession, the revenue, and now we're spending $82 million buying the boats. I mean, this is a business that you should get into, right? This is unbelievable. So part of, part of the challenge is to bring a management system in place that meets the needs of struggling New Yorkers, making sure that we're delivering essential services, but at the same time, managing to success. And that is something that I think we have to explore. I, I appreciate that, and we've done some work on the ferries as well, and I think it's a policy issue that's very important to New Yorkers, although people do love the ferries. My daughter Fer took one yesterday. Ferry, ferries are great, but we also want to make sure that we can expand these services and the way you expand them is by running them efficiently and getting the best deal. That is true in almost every agency of government right now, that with limited resources in the future, and I think we all agree that at some point this economy will sputter. It always does, it always has. We've had a tremendous recovery, but now we have to think strategically about where we go from here. Many of you know this, but I appreciate this more. You know, there's not a lot of spending, there's not a lot that a mayor can spend, right? A budget is $92.2 billion, it's gone up $20 billion uh, in the last few years, but at the end of the day, city councils and mayors really can't spend a lot because it's all fixed, police are fixed, state money, federal money, so we have a precious few billion dollars. 
So if you put $500 million to ferries and you're not being efficient, or you're spending 850 on Thrive and you can't measure that, you start to add up all of these large expenditures, and then you say, wait a minute, we're done. Can't spend any more money, but yet we still have people in homeless shelters. We don't have the kind of housing program that's going to alleviate homelessness. And that's what worries me as controllers, the city's chief fiscal officer. We are not getting to a point where if the economy changes and we're an international economy, we will have trouble uh, in the next 10 years. And no one wants to focus on it because today the city seems flush and everything's okay. So I sound like you guys, right? I sound like, you know, like, uh, you know I'm like Dale Hemmendinger this morning. You know, the sky's falling, the sky's falling. And, but we do have to take that into consideration. We do. And, and I heard the mayor say that, you know, as they put money in the adopted budget and reserves, they did their PEG program, and, and we share some of the same um, issues in, in analyzing that, that we shouldn't really be doing any more PEGs maybe till next February. Would you be recommending that the city do a PEG program for the November I, I don't, plan? I don't, I don't think this was a real PEG program. I think they looked at some efficiencies. They put some money away. I think it could be more robust. Okay. Uh, let's talk about New York City's competitiveness, helicoptering up. Um, which is very, very important. Now, we have grown, our, our jobs have, we've grown jobs during this recovery more than the nation, lifted up the state's average um, job creation rate, cer certainly. Um, but there is, some are arguing that there's an anti-growth sentiment that'll hurt New York's competitiveness. We've seen Amazon pull out in the discussion around that, delays in rezoning, discussions of commercial rent control. Of course, this is on top of the federal salt cap, the cap on state and local tax reductions, an extension on the state on the millionaire's tax, and I'll stop there on that list. Thanks. <laughs> Are you concerned that the current policy and, and, and political environment might affect New York's competitiveness? Look, there's been this, I think, unwritten covenant uh, that government has had with the people in the city going back many decades, and that was to be the city we want to be, we have to keep crime low, and we have to be competitive, and we have to continue our growth. And the success of New York has been just that through multiple administrations. We've been able to keep crime low and grow the economy. That's a success story, and we should be proud of that. I think what you're seeing in terms of where the city is going or where the people in the city are going is they want growth, but they also want equity and they want fairness. And they want to know that we are also creating wealth in all of our communities. Uh, there's a real issue of young people who can't afford to stay in New York or come to New York, immigrants who come here, who, uh, who, who give us that, that, you know, who we are, are also having trouble making it here. And I think there has to be a recognition that growth must continue, but we have to expand our priorities. And the Amazon deal was a perfect example of a missed opportunity when here you have this company coming here and we wake up in the morning and we read the New York Times and the deal was done, right? The mayor and the governor, they did the deal in secret. And that was the beginning of the end because people are going to question tax abatements. People want to know we're getting value. People in communities want to know that they're being heard. And the formula for growth has got to be an expanded opportunity for people in neighborhoods to become invested. When I was Manhattan Borough President, we expanded Columbia University, we expanded Fordham University, and we expanded NYU. These were three contentious expansions, not to mention Cornell Techion. And I did it in the open. 
We did it going to meetings where a thousand people were at. And we got it done because people understood the relationship between growth and protecting a community. We've got to go back to that. And look, part of the problem is when you have a city council that is term limited, and I don't blame them, it is hard to try to get to compromise. So the hearings were kind of carnival-like. And maybe when we think about the new government, new mayor, new controller, new pub, you know, new five new borough president, maybe it's time to sort of expand uh, the opportunity for city council candidates to be speaker and create an eight-year speakership. So that you have the opportunity for a new mayor to have eight years, perhaps we should also expand the pool of potential speaker candidates. So then we can sort of slow down and take a breath and think long-term about the health of the city and the kind of rezonings that will actually benefit people and communities. I just think we need to, you know, ambition is natural instinct. We all have it, I certainly do. But we do need to be temperate and have a certain grounding if we're gonna meet the challenges of the city. Are there certain policies that we should be enacting to improve our competitiveness or modernizing? And I'm thinking, of course, on the Amazon deal, on REAP and ICAP and these as of right, um, Tax, tax abatements, should we be modernizing those? Are there other policies that you would recommend to keep us competitive? Look, I think it's appropriate to always look at these tax abatement programs. REAP and ICAP, to me, seems a little outdated. Uh, a lot of these, you know, a lot of the abatements were for, to create things that wouldn't ordinarily happen. I think it's safe to assume in this charged environment, development environment, uh, we have to prioritize what we want to abate. So I think we should review it, but not to be anti-business, just because it's appropriate to see where, you know, where that would happen. Uh, so I would, I'm not, uh, you know, I, I'm for always trying to create programs that meets the needs now. One of the things that we have to be competitive and think about is, you know, how we're going to wire this city. You know, where are we in terms of 5G? You know, I asked, do it in City Hall. Come on, folks, you've got other cities expanding uh, into new internet capacity, which would create new jobs and new possibilities, but our 5G program is now lagging behind. This is the way we jumpstart an economy and then create jobs. The other thing I want to mention, which I think is very fundamental to the future of the city, when you see new jobs in a high-tech economy coming here, we also have to make sure that we give every New Yorker the opportunity to participate in that economy. We need to really revamp our workforce development. We are still teaching people how to work in this city based on the 80s and 90s uh, when we had word processors. It's time to create a robust uh, a, a new way of job training because we bring these jobs to the city. This is a great opportunity for young people and people in different professions to take advantage of what's coming here. And that creates equality everywhere. That creates wealth in all of our zip codes. So you've talked about balancing growth with other neighborhood concerns. Let's talk a little about rent regulation, something that you've supported for uh, decades um, and, and um, supported, as, as I read your statement, the recent um, protections that were strengthened in Albany in, in this session, of course, will certainly help certain renters and, and stop certain abuses of the system that certainly should have never happened. On the other hand, there are concerns with how the law um, finances individual apartment improvements, major capital improvements. One of the things that CBC worked on early on is noting that rent-stabilized apartments are actually in worse condition 
than market rate apartments? Should we be concerned about our housing stock as a result of the law? We should be concerned about our housing stock. We've lost 400,000 uh, apartments that used to rent for $1,000 or less in the last 15 years. Uh, we see neighborhoods where people have built those communities that no one wanted to live in. Uh, where I grew up in Washington Heights, there were no investors coming to the community back when I was growing up. We didn't see yellow taxis coming in. We saw those fast cars moving in so fast. We're like, what is that? Uh, we, didn't, we, we didn't have the benefit of uh, investment. And now the people, the pioneers who built up these communities, you know, they're at the point where they now have a certain amount of success, uh, uh, you know, some, some equity in these communities because they stayed and fought to bring them back to life. And now people want to come in and develop those neighborhoods. And I understand skylines change, but for God's sakes, we can't push the people out who built our city and put them in homeless shelters. It's just not sustainable. We need a different kind of housing plan, for example, the way LaGuardia built public housing, Lindsay and Rockefeller were the mainstays of the Mitchell-Lama housing program, Ed Koch understood that we needed a robust housing plan and invested in our communities and changed the Bronx and other neighborhoods. And so we have to have a bigger conversation about this. And yes, rent regulation was, was strengthened in this last session. But as someone who was an assemblyman back in the days when uh, the Republicans were in the state Senate, you could not get a piece of pro-tenant legislation introduced in the state Senate, the, the, even on things that benefited everybody, because they had their agenda and the tenants had theirs and nothing got done. I think this is a correction, and we'll see where we go from here. But we had to stop the bleeding of people who built up our neighborhoods being pushed out and then we end up paying for this on the back end because that's why we're spending $3.2 billion uh, in our homeless system. So do you think, though, that the quality of the housing stock of rent-regulated tenants might decline given that the, that the incentive for investment improving those apartments and those buildings has been virtually taken away? So let's see how this works. Right now, people have a sense of security that they're not going to be pushed out of their community. People have a sense of security that their mother or father who's in their 80s is not going to land on the streets. In the meantime, I think we have to change our housing program to better align it to the people who are one step away from homelessness. I've issued, you know, I've put forth a housing plan that I believe will address the issue of the poorest people in the city not finding an apartment and ending up in a homeless shelter. I guess what I'm really saying is this is complicated. And maybe the strategy here has to be, let's take a time out, let's recognize where we're at, and then let's start changing the dynamic to work on some of these issues. But I believe that what happened in Albany was critical to maintaining affordability in the city. And nobody on the other side of this and, and, and said, you know, I have a housing plan of our own that's going to help the poorest people in the city. No, nobody ever steps forward and says, you know, I have a plan, right? Everyone wanted to protect what they had, and I think we have to start looking at the city as a whole if we're going to be a city for everybody. Yes. And I think during that pause, it behooves us all, your office and, and, and CBC, to look at the impact on um, rents on the market rate um, apartments to see if there's an impact, and the impact potentially on supply, because as your housing plan, as others have, have noted, 
we, are, we need more supply if we're going to solve these problems. And, we, and people are concerned legitimately whether this constrains our supply over the long run. Let's see, I, my, my sense is we should now double down and look at, apart from fair market housing, I think we should move the mayor's housing plan to shift it to the people who we need to help the most, who are in that 580,000 person category of one step away from homelessness. You know, many people here think about the economy very strategically, but one international financial incident, you know, a Brexit that gets out of control, something happening in Greece, Trump waking up one day and says, you know, I haven't taxed my fellow New Yorkers enough, and then we're really in a serious crisis, we could have a blown out homeless problem. That's why I keep saying save, 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 because I don't trust the international markets and what's happening in Washington. So everybody should be concerned about the viability of the economy. And let's discuss one more issue before we uh, go to our trustees. Contracting it doesn't work very well. That's true. Human service contracting you know, is delayed, and people are virtually expected with a nod and a wink to work without a contract. You noted that over 80% of our contracts are registered after they start on the capital contracting. You know, fewer people bid because the cost of doing business with the city is high, and those who do bid, and there is a cost of doing business, and you've pointed this out. We are spending some amount of money more just because of our contracting process being dysfunctional. How do you think we could speed it up how do you think, are there steps in the process we could actually remove that would speed it up? So this is truly an outrage. We, we as a city, if you think about it, we, we really don't provide all direct services, right? We contract with many, many not-for-profits through multiple agencies, whether it's housing, childcare, you know, adult services, seniors. We have a network of not-for-profits that we fund but we don't really fund them. What we do is we leave them on the hook because we don't get their contracts finished. They end up taking out bridge loans, putting these organizations in jeopardy. You have executive directors who spend more time trying to find their contract within the barrels of city government than actually doing their work that they, one, they love to do, and two, that's what we're paying them for. We need a reform of the procurement contracting system. This is hard to do because nobody thinks of procurement. If you walk down the street after this and said, Stringer says, you know, no justice, no procurement, right? People, <laughs> right? People would be, what is he talking about, right? But the truth is, this is a social justice issue because if we jeopardize the not-for-profits, who's gonna get hurt? The poorest people in the city. I wanna see timelines for agencies. Controller's office has a 30-day time clock to either sign a contract or return a contract. The agencies should have that as well. We need to reform the mayor's office of contracts and do the gritty work that's going to really elevate this issue. And that is something that has to be a priority because we are really on the brink of harming a lot of these smaller and larger not-for-profits that actually run the city. How is that game? I mean, people have worked on this for a long time. Um, one of our trustees, Lair Townsend, who has a long history in the city, said to me, when I took the job, if you, if you can work on procurement and fix it, that's like the Lord's work. Um, and yes, people aren't rallying outside of, uh, of City Hall saying, what do we want procurement reform? Right. When do we want it now? <laughs> although, although, although I have, I have done that. You, you have done that. I, I, was, going, I was going. I was going. <laughs> it's lonely, but so many people are affected. How can we change the dynamic? Because well, we are. You know, so we are. So, so this is the good news. 
our office, just some credit claiming, which I haven't done enough of this morning, uh, we, we are changing this. We have organized a network of human services uh, providers and even beyond that to demand that the Charter Vision Commission looks at timelines. Legislatively, the council should be passing those timelines. And I do believe we're going to have procurement justice soon. And, 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 and that is critical. So I think we are seeing a change. The fact that we are now raising this issue uh, this morning is, is clearly this is on the radar. I think the press has to spend a little more time doing the investigative work, and we'll help them with this, uh, to actually look at why these contracts are amiss and what is actually happening within the agencies. And then we will see uh, a real reform. Well, why don't we open it up? There are probably, uh, I, my list could go on and on since what you do is so interesting to CBC, but why don't we open it up to some of our guests today if they have any questions? But um, uh, tax policy changes, are there changes that the city can consider that would increase our competitiveness? You know, a lot of our tax structure has to do with Albany. Uh, and so it's hard to, uh, you know, uh, we have, we're very limited in what we can do. But look, I think competitive, you know, what is competitiveness today, right? Uh, if, you're a, if, you're a, if you're somebody who... Uh, is from another part of the United States, and you are having big dreams as a young person, you want to come to New York City. And that has been our pull. People want to be here. Why? Because the jobs that are created here are work, you know, are work since you know, during the recovery. But also, people do want to come to our diversity and actually live here. They like our open space. They like low crime. They want that competitive edge. They want a fair city. So what we have going for us is us, the people who make up New York City. And the job of government is to, is to make sure that when people come here, whether it's new immigrants fleeing persecution, refugees who come here, or business leaders who come here, our job is to make sure that we give everybody a shot to own a business, run a business, work in a business. And for the kids who grew up here like me, uh, whose parents didn't leave. You want to make sure that every kid in every school has an opportunity to get that first-rate education that will lead to a job. Arts education, science education. We need to rethink how, how our education system is going to continue to make us competitive. Look, we lose 40% of our teachers in the public school system within five years. Why is that happening? And why aren't we doing anything about it? Why aren't we creating uh, an opportunity for increased learning among teachers? You know, the more we train teachers, right, the more likely they stay in the system. That's true in Boston and Denver. But we should be doing that. That's how we become competitive. We can't educate only in certain zip codes. So that's step one for me. Step two is job training. You want to be competitive, then we got to train people for the jobs that are here or companies won't come here and they're not going to stay here. So that's another way we become competitive. And the other thing we need to do is signal to the rest of the world that New York City is open for business, and this government is laser-focused 18 hours a day, seven days a week, on economic development. Look, 84% of the jobs being created today are being created in Brooklyn, Queens, and the Bronx. 84%. People in Brooklyn are working in Brooklyn. People in the Bronx are working in the Bronx. 
We are truly now a five borough economy for the first time in the history of the city. We should start acting this way. We have to realign our bus and subway system. Rush hour in the 80s was 7 a.m. to 9 p.m., 7 p.m., 7, 5 p.m. to 7 p.m. Uh, that's when people got home to make dinner. Throw that out the window. Rush hour starts at 6 a.m. People are getting home at 11 a.m. But our bus and subway system doesn't take into account the new economy. You want to be competitive, then you've got to build a transit system for this century and this job creation era, and that is how we stay competitive. Once we do that, and we focus on running government actually, less speechifying, more work in government, we will solve these problems. Well, I'm sure your staff's glad that you gave them six hours a night to sleep um, from the, from the eight, 18 hours, and I, I know hardworking staff, and they're wonderful, and they've always been wonderful to work with. John. John Sanowski, Atkos. Thank you, sir. Um, I want to touch a little bit more on the tax issue with something that maybe we can control. Um, what are your hopes for property tax reform? And uh, what proposals would you like to see from the advisory committee? Well, I'd like to see the advisory committee. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, issue a report. You've had your hearings. Put it out there. And let's discuss real property tax reform and how we you know, and how we do it in a way that is going to be more fair and more equal. You know, we have, you know, the different classes within the system, the traditional way of thinking about, you know, property tax reform is if you help one class, you hurt another class. And I'm hoping that we can have a series of recommendations that we can talk about to get this aligned. Um, people should know that uh, I'm the former chair of the uh, Real Property Taxation Committee in Albany. Uh, I thought I got the committee because I was being punished. And then, uh, the, and, and, but in reality, you know, I, I was able to travel the state and work with people on this issue. It's complicated, it's tough, but the stakes are very high now. There are people who are really having problems paying their property taxes. Uh, that is not, you know, that, that should not be a punitive process. Hi, Carol Hold on one second. Uh, you'll hand up. You'll oh, I get it. Here, here, Mike, so we could all hear you in back. Thanks, okay. Daryl. I've been involved with CBC for about a decade now, and every year we talk about pension funding and the relationship of that, the scary relationship of that to the to the budget. So my question is, um, how can we make the pensions more affordable and sustainable in the long run? Well, we came in six years ago uh, to a pension system or the back office of the pension system hanging by a thread. We had not really focused as an office on how we can streamline the pension system to make better investments. Many of you know some of our success. We put in place the first, the first risk management operation in a generation. We modernized the system, made the salaries more competitive. We, for the first time, created one investment meeting so within the five funds, we weren't doing the same meetings over and over again, meaning the people who work at the Bureau of Asset Management never visited investments, never took time to think about our asset allocation, never thought about how we can increase women and minority-owned businesses to be part of the pension fund. All of this happened within the last six years. We are over 70% fully funded, which is better than most pension systems. And part of what I'm trying to do is get us an edge by streamlining what we do to take advantage of any opportunity to increase the fund. And that has been our priority, and this is the first time 
perhaps since Jay Golden, when we actually looked at the system and re-engineered it to meet the realities of what we were dealing with. When I first became a controller and I realized that in order to get an investment done, you had to go to five separate boards over and over again. The person who was my longest serving uh, staff member who I made trustee, she came to me after the first few months and said, how did I draw the short straw in all this? I'm constantly doing antiquated paperwork. How come Elena gets to be first deputy controller <laughs> and I get this? So we set about reforming it, and we've made it better. We have five boards that operate together. We do not have the duplicative uh, uh, investments that have really marred the pension fund. And we will continue to make those improvements. I want to leave the controller's office really codifying a lot of the reforms that we made. Again, this is never going to be on the, you know, the front pages. This is not going to be a big campaign issue. It never is. But fixing the back office in the controller's office will be uh, one of the great pride uh, and joy of our lives in the controller's office because we know how we've shaped that office. Our consultant highlighted 14 real issues related to the pension fund that could cause harm to the pension fund. 14 items that had to be fixed, not next year, not five years from now. We dealt with every one of them. Every one of them we have fixed based on a management report that we commissioned, and I'm very proud of it. And this is what CBC has always been about, which is making sure that we protect that pension fund for teachers, firefighters, and police officers. There's nothing more important than that to me. Can I yep, do a little please. prerogative for follow-up? Are there next steps on consolidation? Yeah. More that we can do to coordinate or even consolidate the five funds? <laughs> Look, right now, it's a great, and I, and I want to really praise the trustees of the pension fund and all the boards. Uh, they recognize efficiency. And legislatively, if I were to try to memorialize or codify this legislatively going to Albany, it would die there. So I had to figure out, without going to Albany, how we could create one investment meeting. And we did the research and found, and found very clearly that if the pension board, all the trustees, agreed to do this, we could re-up it every six months or a year. They agreed. We were able to get every single trustee, labor trustee, elected official to go with us on this. It took a lot of work, but we got it done. And I do think that someday we'll go to Albany and codify it, but I also think during my term as controller, we also have to see if it works. And so far, it's been tremendous, and perhaps this is something the next controller can do coming in with a fresh agenda and fresh eyes, and I'd be happy to leave this with whoever that will be. Fantastic. Please. Uh, Scott, Mike Young. Uh, Mike Young on behalf of our neighborhood association, which is on the, uh, the east side. Um, in our neighborhood, you know, a, a street, you know, East 95th Street, the conversation has changed. For the first time since I've been in the city, and I've been here for 38, 39 years now. By the way, I, I met you back in 92 on the west side. For the, first, for, for, the, for the first time, our neighbors are talking about leaving the city. And four houses on our, on our street between Lexington and Park have gone up for sale, another's gone up for rent. The people down the street unplugged the computers, relocated their hedge fund type business in Miami. There's a lot of conversation about we can you know, spend three months here and two months there, and, and therefore less than six months in New York. 
And it's striking because this is a neighborhood which, whose commitment to New York City has up to now been unquestioned. And my question is, is there a sensitivity on the part of the city government that the thinking has changed and that there is a real conversation happening about people leaving? I can't speak for the city government because I'm not, you know, I'm just controller, but I can tell you, you know, my thinking is we want people, uh, New Yorkers, to stay New Yorkers. And part of when we talk about a housing plan and talk about economic development strategies, that's about making sure the people who built up our neighborhoods and invest in the city can stay here. Uh, I think the, the Trump uh, tax hit on, on the city uh, has been problematic, although I will tell you, we are now, Preston Niblack, our budget director, is crunching, right? We're still crunching the numbers to see some of that, and we'll have more to report to CBC about is that forcing people out? We're going to look at the tax returns now that they've been, you know, now that we're in April, and I'll come back to you and, and talk to you about that. I don't have every, every, any real evidence of that kind of flight out. I'm not saying it's not happening, but we don't have it yet. But look, Part of what I want to be able to do is make sure that we have an economic development strategy. We want to keep businesses here. We want to keep people here. Uh, you got to be a fool not to always worry about you know, people having to leave. I do think we are quickly becoming uh, the unaffordable city. The rent is too high. The childcare expenses of $21,000 a year has put people out of the workforce, mostly women. I want to invest in childcare in the city in a more robust way, a way that will put 20,000 people back into the workforce, mostly women. They'll generate $540 million, pay millions of dollars in taxes. We have to be creative in our approach to what our city dynamic looks like. We do want to keep people with wealth and earned wealth here. We also want to make sure that we're continuing to build to the middle class. When NYCHA went down the way it did, it violated another covenant in the 1930s, which was you get an affordable housing apartment, you come to this country, or you're here, and LaGuardia's strategy was get the apartment and then get to the middle class. We have got to continue that tradition. Our advantage today is we speak some 200 languages. We have the most diversity in the world. Everyone wants to come and visit us. And they're not just coming here, if I can just veer for a second, because they want to see the Statue of Liberty, right? They're really coming here to see us, right? Do you ever notice tourists that they stare at you when you're walking down the street, right? Because we speak, because <laughs> we're a little different, right? We speak different languages, different cultures. You go into a public school, my kid's public school today, it's amazing. You've got the UN in the school. This has to be bottled, marketed. This is the future. And we have to have strategies to do that. The best way to keep people in the city is to give them the quality of life that they can't find anywhere. My, my parents, who some of you know, my mom's a former council member, my stepfather, Carlos Cuevas, was the former city clerk, deputy Bronx borough president. When, you know, they spent half their time in Puerto Rico, and I said to my mother, you know, the hurricane hit, you guys gotta go to Florida, right? Just go to Florida, get out of Puerto Rico. I'm thinking as a, as a son. And my mother said to me, get out of Puerto Rico and go to Florida? Scott, I don't go where the old people go. I stay in New York and I stay in Puerto Rico. You know why? Because this is what keeps people living longer, New York City. And I don't think people will sacrifice that right away. And so I'm on the other side of that cup uh, full. If there is one more question, we'll have time. Let's see. You've raised a lot of very central issues for running the city. How many pictures do you want to take? 
<laughs> priorities, priorities for programs. How do you get priorities for programs when the programs all come up through silos and come into the political center and the revenues that support the city have no relation to how those revenues are spent in establishing priorities? That's, that's a political question. The second has to do with the, the bureaucracy, and I just want to talk about the cost side, let alone the covering of their ass side on how they deal with these contracts. But on the cost side, I, I, I testified for the city on the police contract. I did, a long, I did a long report, and I was struck. I hadn't done it in years. At the cost, the costs are out of control in terms of a very important service, but the union costs, and I believe it's true across the board, make no sense in terms of the long term. So how do you deal with both the, the, the cost and the priority issue as we solve some of the problems you raised? I think you raise a very legitimate issue of silos among agencies because that is where we run up costs and that's when we don't have accountability. So going back to what I talked about a lot this morning, just I guess the, the end of that discussion, you know, homelessness, homeless services is in one silo, right? We spend billions to service the poorest people. But housing is in another silo. And we don't break it down to have that discussion of taking the 30% of the people who work, who go to sleep in a homeless shelter, we never align that housing discussion with services. And that is where costs balloon and there's no accountability. So on the one hand, you say to somebody, how come we haven't, we're spending all this money and we haven't reduced the homeless population? It, the, the agencies don't talk to each other. And look, in terms of collective bargaining agreements, uh, you don't want to, you know, I'm not in the, you know, I'm not in the room as controller, uh, but I have followed the contract negotiations. And look, there's a natural get what we can for the city to protect our, uh, you know, to protect um, our fiscal health, but also make sure that our city workers are paid adequately and fairly. Uh, and a lot of these services that we negotiate, these are people who put their lives on the line every day. They do the work that none of us, or at least I would never think that I could do. Firefighters, police officers, and I'll tell you, another group of people, and partly because I have a seven-year-old and a six-year-old at my age in public school, uh, those teachers, we can't do without them. Can't do it without them. Well, thank you very much. I said we'd keep you for longer, but I was joking. Thank you. Thank you.